All right. Hey, uh, Jeff Bullock here with Man at Church High Point. I have with us today one of uh, my heroes, a good friend, Dr. Rice Brooks. Many of you uh, may or may not know Rice, but he's the author of God's Not Dead, which a couple of movies have been made. He also, uh, the book, The Human Right, which is one of my favorite, just the right of all humans to be able to hear the gospel. And uh, the man, the myth, and the Messiah, of course, we're here to talk about the Purple Book, who is the co-author Pastor Steve Merle. So, Rice, really, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Jeff, yeah, it's a joy. Good to see you again. And, of course, we've known each other for years. So, the anything you ask me to do, I'd love to help because I believe in you and your, your calling. And glad to know that you're back in the Carolina area. Yeah. Kind of where it all began for you in that region, right? It sure is. In fact, I was going to tell everybody, maybe they don't know, but um, – in 19, back, Rice and I were part of a church planning movement. Of course, I was a student uh, way back in the 80s. But in 1981, Rice mm-hmm. came and was doing church planting at a, a country, little country school over in Chapel Hill called UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, that's when my wife in 1981 got saved. And then uh, two years later, in 1983, they decided to come up to the Ivy League school at North Carolina State, the more prominent uh, school, uh, and uh, that's where I got born again, and Rice was planting churches, and uh, uh, and so, anyway, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, so foundations are what we're talking about. So, Rice, you know, uh, what, what, I just wanted to ask you, what did you and Pastor Steve, why did you guys write the Purple Book? What was, what was in, inside of you to, to want to get this out? Well, the Purple Book is a simple tool. It's kind of like a, you know, like a little tool you'll dig in a, for gardening or whatever, but it's a tool that really systematically goes through the foundational doctrines of the faith. What is repentance? So, you know, you can hear a verse on repentance, you can read one and then you go to the next verse. But when you take, when you take out the verses on repentance and you really see them together, you really get an idea of the weight of the truth of that, of that principle of that, of that truth in scripture or, you know, water baptism, you don't just have a verse here and a verse there, but you really see the full picture uh, of those, of, of the teachings of scripture. And so there are, there are foundational teachings. The apostle Paul said in first Corinthians, he said, I laid a foundation in first Corinthians three, someone else is building on it. But he said, I laid it, which means foundations are intentionally laid. So many times what happens is a person will come to faith and then they'll, you know, a few years later get into a class or, you know, it's like, and they start building their Christian life, but they don't intentionally build that foundation first. And Jesus warned about that in Luke six. He said, if you, if you, you know, hear my words and don't do them, you're like a person who builds a house and does not lay a foundation. Then when the storms come, the found, you know, the house is destroyed. So many times we don't do, the autopsy and uh, or really start digging down deep, so to speak, until after somebody has had a, that maybe they've fallen away from the faith or, a, you know, they kind of broken apart spiritually. And then we start digging around to see, oh, they never had a foundation. So I'm grateful, number one, and as well as Steve, that we had people in our lives that intentionally laid foundations for us, number one. And so we just took those same principles of how, those foundations have been laid in our lives. And then we just put that in this book uh, called the purple book. And uh, the purple book actually 
it was intent. It, it originally was called uh, Biblical Foundations, and it had it was supposed to be the artwork on the cover was supposed to be a blueprint. Yeah. So the, the the artwork was a blueprint, architectural blueprint. Well, the printer made a mistake and it came out purple instead of blue. And so the printer so, said to me, he said, look, don't, I won't charge you, but just don't make us reprint them because we printed up a lot. So I started holding the book up and calling it the purple book because it was a pretty ugly purple to begin with. It sure was. And then the name kind of caught on the purple book. Uh, but it really is kind of a, a way to kind of deflect the fact that, hey, you're doing something. You're doing a Bible study book, but the purple book sounds a little bit more like uh, intriguing, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you're not exactly sure. You know, I, I'm reminded, and this is, I mean, we're so grateful for you and Steve and Pastor Ron and so many others who laid foundations in, in our lives. But the, the scripture that really this book that I remember from was Psalm 11.3, where it says that the foundations are destroyed what will the righteous do, which means foundations can be laid and then they can be neglected. And so you can actually lay a good foundation and then it be destroyed. How can, how can a believer, how can a, a, a Christian maintain and keep strong foundations? How does God, how does God help us do that? How do we do that? Yeah. I'm, and I, I don't, I don't want to, debate with you on that verse but i i think you know once you lay a good foundation um i would i would say that you know that the enemy does come down and, and attack our foundations he knows he's got to you know like in a football game got to take your legs out from under you you gotta you know you gotta go and and attack the very so the foundations of is jesus lord is you know, what is the, what is the evidence that the Christian faith is true? And those are the, that's why we've had to go even deeper that it's not just, here's what the Bible teaches our foundations, but actually teach on why those foundations are actually true. So when you and I were coming up, uh, we could just kind of start with the assumption that the Bible's true and that Jesus is the son of God. And that's why I wrote God's Not Dead, uh, because 70% of young people, they were saying, would leave high school uh, as a Christian and get to college or university, and they would you know, lose their faith. And so the ultimate foundation that's really being attacked uh, is that foundation of, you know, why is the Bible true? Why is Christ the only way? Um, what makes Christianity distinctive from other faiths? And so that's why, like last year, I spent, I was on 37 campuses. Uh, 36 of them were secular. One, I went to Asbury Seminary, but I did 36 campus events last year where I, kind of like when you met me and I did the, the, the music seminar, I basically, you know, did a multimedia seminar. I do a multimedia seminar called God's Not Dead on Campus. Hundreds of kids come everywhere we go. And I give every person a free God's Not Dead book, which lays out the evidence for just the big picture. How do you know God exists? How do you know that Christianity is true? So I think even more, even more basic and fundamental of the foundations now are the foundations of the reality of these things. And so hopefully as you are leading the church there and as, you know, the purple book is being done, We'll go even deeper because the, the, the reality that the resurrection of Jesus is an historical fact and that Christianity is the only religion 
that bases the weight of its truth on one historical event, and that is the resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection did not happen, your faith is in vain. So that's even, it's even more fundamental. It's even, there's even shoring up that foundation beyond just the biblical teachings of repentance and faith and water baptism going even deeper is where we're really having to shore up in these days. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that very much. I, I remember, I guess you and others said many times that if you really want to go deeper in God, go deeper in the foundations and, and re reminded out of that Luke seven, it says you've got to dig down deep. The rock's not on the surface. It's pretty deep. And so uh, just keep going deep in those foundations. And that's of course what we're trying to do. So um, anyway, uh, you know, I was uh, just thinking that and I, you know, we know Jesus, he saved us, he changed our lives, but there's in a sense, and we're indebted to him, but in a sense, we're indebted to the men and women who led us and laid the foundations. And in many ways, we're, we owe you and Ron and Steve, many others, um, a debt that we could never repay. And so thank you for being in our lives 30 plus years ago and remaining in our lives today. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, and it and uh, all we did was pass on what others did for us. So others did it for us. So we had no other choice, nor would we have wanted not to do it that way. You know, we we wanted to do it this way. It's a joy to see you now in your destiny. And I mean, you were in Europe. You planted churches there. So you've been you've been around the world, and to come right back into your you know to come back home, so to speak, to North Carolina. That's a it's a good thing to see, and it's a joy to help you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Hey, and I appreciate you continue to sow into Pastor Shimmick, Magda in Poland and all the great things that are happening there. So really, thank you. And those guys are great. So anyway, we love thank you guys. We appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. We'll see you. Hey, so great to see you again, Rice. Thank you so much for being with us and helping us kick off this Purple Book series. And this is a new series we're starting. If you've just joined us, we're starting it today. It's based on this book called The Purple Book. It's a, a Bible study for biblical foundations. There's 12 chapters, and we're going to be preaching each week uh, out of the chapters of this book. And so we want you to get this book and join us. We have small groups online, and you've heard all about that already. So, so why, why this series? Because we need foundations in our lives. Foundations actually determine the future of our Christian life. So often, you know, which is really unfortunate, so often the process of establishing the foundations in our lives are overlooked or, or passed over because really uh, foundations are never seen. They're always under the surface. The, there are the things that are established in our heart and out of the heart comes all that we do, our actions, our words, our thoughts. And so, you know, actually, the only way to really know what your foundations are is through trials and tribulations and, and disruptions in our lives. Some of the things that we're going on right now, crisis. And when crisis comes, here's the thing we need to know about. When difficulty and crisis come, they never change the foundations that actually exist in our heart. They simply reveal or expose to the extent to what extent, to what level we have actually established Christian foundations in our lives. And Pastor Rice talked a little bit about that, about Jesus being Lord and being the boss of our lives. He talked about repentance and baptism. And, and we're going to be talking about all of those things. And so when crisis comes and difficulty comes and what Jesus talked about, the storms, they really just reveal to what extent the foundations in our house 
in our lives are well-built or ill-built. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? And I think in this passage, what we're talking about is, I know that foundations get in our lives, but it says that we can lay some foundations, but foundations that are laid actually can be destroyed. And unless foundations are maintained, and I think that's really what we're talking about, we can lay the proper foundations, but unless we maintain them, they can deteriorate in our lives. Proverbs 24 you can go to that chapter and just read about it. it. tells about a man who has a vineyard, and it's overrun with briars and weeds, and the wall around the vineyard is broken down, and it describes the man as uh, being a sluggard and lacking sense. And most of the time, the foundations that are in our lives that begin to deteriorate or sometimes even destroyed, it happens through neglect. So we want to take the time during this series to really try to strengthen the foundations that we have or for some of us maybe really establish or restore some of those foundations. So we're in chapter one of the Purple Book and we're going to be talking about sin and salvation. So let's just get right to the definition of those two things so you know what we're talking about as we navigate. <clears throat> sin means missing the mark. It actually means to fail. It means to fall short. Imagine yourself in France and you're going to swim over to England in the English Channel. Whether you make it a mile across or you make it 20 miles across, maybe you even make it 100 yards from the shore, but if you sink and don't make it, you still fall short. So it doesn't matter how long we go. Sin is, sin is missing the mark. And the mark, of course, where we're trying to get is the shores of God's nature and God's character to be like him. Romans 8.29 says this. He says, he has predestined us. He's talking about you and I, everyone who gets born again. Really, even if you're not saved, he's talking about you. He has predestined every person to be conformed to the image of his son. That's Romans 8.29. God says he made us in his image so that we would actually be like him. And sin is when we fail to act in a manner that reflects God's very nature and character. We must understand, look, we must understand that sin is more than just, I don't mean simple, but it's more than acts of disobedience. It's failing to act like God. When we fail to act like God's nature and character, the Bible calls that sin. And listen, sin is not just something exclusive to Christianity. Sin, which is evil and wickedness, sin and evil is not a problem for Christianity only. It's a problem for the atheist. Evil is a, prob uh, a problem for the Buddhist, for the Muslim. Everyone agrees. I mean, it doesn't matter who you talk to at some point. I mean, you look at all the things that are going around in the world, but everyone has, uh, looks at the world and says, something has terribly gone wrong. I mean, if you don't look at the world and see that something is wrong in the world, then, then you're not watching the news or maybe your head is in the sand. But you look at the world and we have wars and we have pandemics. We have addictions. There's human trafficking. And recently, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd in Minnesota. I mean, when you look at those things, you have to, even, even someone without many morals will say, that is wrong. And not everyone agrees that Christian morality is the standard of good and evil. So we're not saying that. But even the atheist, even the atheist, someone, every one of us, has a sense of right and wrong. And everyone, at some level, 
depending on their morality, demands justice. That's sin. Salvation is, means to rescue or to be delivered. It's an image of someone, imagine, it's the image of someone out in, in deep waters. And they're trying to stay afloat, but they begin to sink. And then someone suddenly, as they're sinking down in the waters, a hand reaches down and pulls them up. This is salvation. See, in our world, we're talking about sin and salvation. Chapter 1, the foundations, we must understand that sin is the problem. And why is sin the problem? It's because of the results that sin produces. Romans 6.23 tells us this. For the wages of sin, the payment of sin, the paycheck of sin is death. Death is the reward of sinning. But salvation is the rescue. Because of the results that sin produces, it produces, because sin produces death and we're sinking down in it, salvation is the rescue from that death. That death. Biblically, and I hope, I hope you understand this and I hope you can embrace this, but biblically, all that is wrong with the world, everything, everything that's broken in the world, personally in our lives and globally, finds its root in sin and in evil. But here's the thing, especially the atheist. Most people want to eliminate evil in the world, but they neglect the evil that's in their own heart. The Bible says that sin is in us. And so you can, you can try to control what happens outside of you, but if you don't deal with the source, you really don't eliminate sin. It's like going out and cleaning oil out of the ocean which a few years ago, many years ago, there was a gusher at the bottom of the ocean. It's like trying to clean up the ocean from the oil, but never stopping the gusher at the bottom of the ocean. And so what I want to do is I want to go back to Genesis 3, which kind of gives us a picture of why. Let's go back to the beginning. Gives us a picture and explains the world. So when you go back to Genesis 3, and we're going to read that here in just a moment, it talks about that God made Adam and Eve and he placed them in a garden. And at that time, there was no sin. There was no sickness. Hey, there was no debt. There was no death. In other words, there was no threat personally to Adam and Eve, none whatsoever. They were relationally healthy. It says, you know, this is a really cool thing. It says that God used to go into the garden and walk in the cool of the day and spend time with Adam and Eve and hang out with them. They had sweet fellowship with God and they had sweet fellowship with one another. There was no rejection. There was no wounding. Uh, they were relationally healthy. The environment that they were placed in was full of peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. They were placed in a perfect paradise. They were put in a garden. And everything in the garden, from plant life to animal life, to the day, to the night, to the heavens, worked in their favor and for them. It was a, a great place to live. The Bible also says this, that they were naked. Meaning they were joyfully vulnerable. They were completely known and didn't try to control the information another person was getting from them. It also says that they were unashamed. This is the condition before sin. They were unashamed. They didn't fear being rejected. And they didn't live with the guilt because they knew they were absolutely loved and absolutely accepted. See, to be naked and unashamed means to be known completely 
and loved absolutely and accepted unconditionally. And this is where Adam and Eve lived. And then we messed it all up. Now, don't think Adam and Eve just messed it up. If you were there, you would have done the same thing. So let's go to Genesis 3, which tells the story of how we messed it all up. Genesis 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. We're going to break it up a little bit. Genesis 3, I want you to gauge in the Bible. There should be some scriptures on the screen, but I want you to gauge in the Bible as well. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this is, this is the image of, of the enemy, the devil, God's arch enemy, the devil. And the devil said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said, surely you won't die. For God, and he's still talking. For God knows that in the day you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust for the eyes, and that it was a delight, delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, which is pride, she, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And right then, as soon as they reached out and touched that fruit, and they bit it, right then the bomb blast goes off. The planes fly into the towers. And the ripple effects of that nuclear blast is still seen and felt and experienced today. See, this is, this is where it comes in. This is the lie. This is the lie the enemy fed. If you disobey, you will not die. That is still the lie. But death is the very thing that unleashed upon this world. It is the bomb blast and, and the ripple effect from that. And that lie that you won't die is still propounded in our ears and whispered in our minds today by our old enemy, Slewfoot. He whispers, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And you don't have to be, he says, listen, just take your ease. You don't have to be that diligent about your own heart. It's not like it will hurt you or anyone else. But death did become our master at that very moment. The Bible says Adam and Eve were born after the nature and likeness of God. But Adam gave birth to kids. Eve gave birth to kids. And they took on their nature, a polluted nature, a corrupted nature. Death became our master. And now we die physically, but we also die spiritually. And physical and spiritual death entered into our world. Spiritual death. Let me just give you some scriptures to back that up. In that moment, they didn't die immediately. But they did, they were separated from God and they died spiritually. Listen to this, spiritual, spiritual death is separation from God who is life. What is death? It is ab, it's the absence of life. And when God leaves our lives, when we separate from him, then death comes in. Isaiah 59 says this, but your iniquities, your sin has made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does, excuse me, so that he does not hear. Ephesians 2.12, at that time you were separated from Christ before we knew him, having no hope and without God in the world. What a, 
What a terrifying place to be. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. The Bible describes that we were spiritually separated from God, and that is a death spiritually. But there's also a physical death that happens. Hebrews 9.27 says this. Forgive me, I hope you're taking notes. And, but these are foundational scriptures for us to get deep in our heart and have this understanding. It's what's wrong with the world. Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread... To all men, because all sinned. And you know this scripture, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. And as a result of death, we became its slave. We're trapped in death. There's no escape. There's nothing you and I can do to escape that. In other words, we almost, as soon as we're born, we live to die. There's no escape. We're in bondage and we become damaged goods. Not only do we become slaves, but there's a damage that happens into our thinking and in our emotions and how we execute life. John 8, 34, Jesus said, everyone who commits sin becomes a slave of sin. This is the reality. Sin is predatorial and it enslaves. It causes addictions. You and I are always trying to break our bad habits and we find that to be a struggle. That's because there is a spiritual and there is a physical death. So let's go back to Genesis. So that's what happened. That's the sin. But let's go back to where it all begins again. In Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. In other words, Adam was standing right there. He didn't prevent her. He didn't stop her. He was... He, he, he was a part of the crime. Then the eyes of both of them, verse 7 says, the eyes of both of them were open. That's very important. And they knew, underline knew, they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverage, coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, God's coming to fellowship with them. And the man, listen, they didn't see God. When they heard that he was coming, it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, I love that, and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you. Adam, he's, he's freaking out. He's full of fear. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, and then God said to him, hey, wait a minute. Who told you that you were naked? The fruit of death is that it removes life. And death separate, separates from life. And when they sinned, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. See, what they did, as soon as they found, when they discovered, they, they realized that they were naked, they sowed fig leaves to hide themselves from one another and they hid themselves from God. The problem See, listen, the problem wasn't that they were lacking clothing. They never had clothing to begin with. I mean, all this time that they were there, they were always naked. And now that they sinned, they, they were still naked. So not having clothing was not the problem. None of that changed. So what had changed? 
I like what Tim Keller says. He says, when it says their eyes were open, it doesn't mean that they were physically blind and now they physically see. It means they had a new awareness, a new consciousness of being naked. And when God asked, who told you you were naked? God is basically asking, where did this new awareness come from? See, before Adam and Eve decided to be their own masters, they had no problem with radical vulnerability. And now suddenly, being vulnerable, being seen by someone as they really are, being observed, being visible, being open and uncovered, has now become traumatic and harrowing. See, this is what sin does. It removes our want and our need for vulnerability and causes us to hide and cover up ourselves. It robs us of all that we've been designed for and truly desire, which is this. This is in the heart of every single person on the planet. What we've been designed for. This is how God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, how they live. We've been designed to be fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted. And when sin came in, it wiped all of that. And you and I have been trying to sow fig leaves together and hide ourselves from one another. And we've been trying to overcome this spiritual death on our own. We've been trying to overcome this physical death on our own. But sin is a problem and it cannot be eradicated. But we do have a solution. The Bible gives us a solution. In fact, not just a solution. It is God's solution to sin. It's God's salvation. So again, let's go back to Genesis 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9 and then look at verse 21. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to them and said, where are you? See, again, that's where the bomb goes off and the planes fly into the towers. But here's the, here's the wonderful thing. God comes into the wreckage. He goes straight into the bomb site, ground zero, as it were. And he comes, listen, he comes and is saying something like this to them. He says, is this what you've done, what, I, what I've given you? And instead of recriminations and God bringing destruction, we have God coming in and putting himself at risk and searching for us. He comes directly into the bomb blast. He comes, he comes straight into ground zero, right into the wreckage, searching and says, where are you? You know, it makes me think back to 9-11. All the first responders and all the citizens of New York City coming right into the rubble and the debris, not bringing wrath and allegations, but searching and yelling and screaming out, where are you? Where are you? Verse 21 says this, God comes in and asks, where are they? Because he's searching for them, not to judge them or condemn them, but to save them because he knows what's happened. The Lord God then in verse 21 says, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He comes in, he doesn't beat them, he clothes them. Here we find God actually comforting Adam and Eve. Instead of stripping them of fig leaves and forcing them 
to live in the embarrassment and guilt of their own mistake. He doesn't come in and say, give me those fig leaves. You guys are going to live naked for the next month until you learn your lesson. He doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he covers them and clothes them. In other words, he rescues them and saves them. Adam and Eve didn't deserve that. They didn't have to work for it. God didn't say, okay, I'll give you some better clothes. You got to work for it for you. You got to plow better. They simply received the covering by faith because of God's goodness and his grace. God comes to them. They don't deserve that kind of kindness. They just have to receive it. And how do they do it? They receive it by faith and by grace. But notice the covering of the fig leaves was their attempt to cover and save themselves from their own efforts. But what they didn't know, but God does, is that in order to be saved from their own death, something had to die in their place. God made for them garments of skin. Blood had to be shed. You know, why does that? Hebrews 9 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, God provided a sacrifice, an animal, for their sin and prepared skins from that sacrifice, which serves for us as a vision for how God covers our sin and saves us from sin. Hebrews 10.4 says this, though. It says, it is impossible, though, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, something more still needed to be done. So what did God do for us? This is what he did. We learned this in the New Testament. It says that he gave us another lamb. Not a lamb that was on the earth, an animal, but he gives us another lamb, an ultimate sacrifice to cover us once and for all. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal son. He's existed from all eternity past, and he will always exist. And he comes down in the form of a man. His name is Jesus, and he becomes exactly like us, except without sin, but takes our sin and punishment upon himself. Isaiah 53 3 through 12, I'm just going to break that up a little bit, but it's a prophetic chapter in Isaiah. And it talks about the promised messianic sacrifice, tells us about who Jesus is, this ultimate sacrifice, this other lamb, not the one that God did in the garden, but a different one. A man becomes a metaphor, the lamb of God. And this is what it says about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 3 through 12. It says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows our sin. He knows the results and the ramifications, the bomb blast, uh, all the residue from the bomb. It says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by the whipping, by the tearing of his flesh, we are healed. Verse 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. It's interesting, when Jesus comes on the scene and he's starting his ministry, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ came to us right in the bomb blast of our sin and took the punishment and the penalty of our sin upon himself. See, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. The sacrifice that's required must be without guilt, without sin. He lived a sinless life, not deserving death, but instead, 
as a sinless, innocent person, took our sin and took our death. And not just any death. I, I love God so much. He, it's not just any death. He came into the world at one of the most cruel moments and times in history when the death penalty was crucifixion. One of the most horrific deaths someone could die. And that's the death he took for you and I. It, tells, it, it puts the weight of what our sin is and the goodness of God that he's willing to take that weight and the depth of how the sin affects us. So how do we access God's salvation? The Bible tells us that we do this by grace or actually through grace by faith. See, faith isn't blind. It's not just something I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to do this and I don't know what the results are. No, faith has evidence. We know what the results are. We know that he does this. Faith has evidence. And we see the evidence of faith in our world because we see the evidence of sin. Faith is believing and accepting that Jesus Christ did die for you and accepting his death for you. That is faith. But see, it's also grace. See, I believe he did this, but grace does something. It changes our heart so that we want to live for God. Not that you have to live for God. You want to live for God. I told you this last week, but when I got born again, my eyes opened and something happened in my heart. I used to, my kids know this and most people know this, but when I was in high school and, and beginning college, I, I smoked a lot of marijuana. And after I got saved, I used to tell people all the time, I smoke just as much pot and marijuana that I want to. I just don't want to. That is what grace does. It comes and changes us from the inside out. That's the solution for sin. Sin resides in the heart and God, the grace of God comes and changes that. Titus 2.11 says this in verse 12. It's a very powerful scripture and sometimes we misunderstand what grace is. The grace of God has appeared, it says, bringing salvation to all men. It means it's available to all men, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. But in verse 12, the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. See, the grace of God reaches out unconditionally, but it doesn't give us a license to keep sinning. Grace changes the heart to want what God wants. And the same grace that changes the heart also instructs us in what God wants. Grace accepts us and it instructs us. And it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live for Him. The grace comes in and changes my want and then instructs me how to want what God wants. And listen, here's the key. This is all in the book. Just as Jesus picked up a cross and died to his own will to do the will of God the Father, so now God's grace comes to us and says, follow Jesus' example. It instructs us to pick up our cross, a metaphor, picking up our cross and die to our own will to do the will of God and Father. And here's the thing. The same will that Jesus chose to fulfill is the same will that we're instructed and that we now want to fulfill. So maybe you during this, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. Maybe you've been watching this. We've learned that sin is what's caused everything in the world, every bad thing that's ever happened to you 
Everything, every bad thing that's happened in the world is a result of that one instance. And just like a pebble dropping in the water and the ripple effects going out, sin has been rippling throughout the generations. But God also provided a way of salvation through his son. That he died the death we should have died for our sin. He lived a sinless life, one we should have lived but could not. The Bible says he died, but because he was sinless, the power of God came in and raised him from the dead. And that's how we now live. God changes our heart. He takes away our sin and he resurrects us. We die and then he resurrects us in his life and he powers us with his Holy Spirit. We'll be talking about that as well. So let me just give you an opportunity. If you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, if you've never asked him to come in and rescue you from this bondage and this slavery, I just want you to pray this simple prayer. Just say, Jesus, rescue, from me, rescue me from my sin. Deliver me from bondage and the damage sin has done to my soul and my mind I give you my life change my heart to want what you want in Jesus name amen and look if you just prayed that prayer wherever you are you know whenever you are you can text this word text MCHP Jesus all one phrase to 940-90 follow the prompts we want to pray with you. We want to stand with you. We want to help you, insist you. So let us know. Please let us know that you prayed that prayer. So listen, we love you. Can't wait to see you today. Don't forget, we have our picnic at 5 o'clock. You can come and pick up your purple book. Come and get that. You can meet some of the small group leaders who are going to be leading the purple book today. Can't wait to see you. We're going to have a lot of fun. See you then.